The Complexity of Kindness, Part and sacrifice, my third and fourth parameters for penance. So courage is probably easier to associate with kindness than responsibility. It takes courage to befriend someone outside of your social comfort zone. And pushing oneself into a position of discomfort for the good of another is by definition sacrifice. Though Christ probably wasn't out of his comfort zone when he did so, his conversation with a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well is consistently cited as an example of Christ's kindness. The woman certainly regarded his communication with her as a social risk, a sacrifice of his own social standing and respectability. As she stated, quote, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Close quote. That's John chapter 4, verse 9. The disciples, as they walked onto the scene at the well, felt the same way. As John account tells us, they marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, what seekest thou? Or why talkest thou with her? Another courageous example is the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan, like Christ, had the courage to take a social risk, helping a Jew who the Samaritans held in high contempt. But the Samaritan also risked his own safety, hazarding an ambush upon himself as he halted to help the injured stranger in the high crime area. Now, an argument may be made that this is only a parable, and that is true. But remember, the story was Christ's direct reply to the questions, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And who is my neighbor? Here's the story of the Good Samaritan, just to refresh your memories. Luke chapter 10, 25 through 37. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he, answering, said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, and wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him and went to him and bound up his wounds, 
pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three, thinkest thou, was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go, and do thou likewise. Now the intent of the parable is clearly that Christ might communicate the level of commitment meant by the phrase, to love your neighbor as thyself. Christ's parable implicitly teaches a brotherly kindness that requires personal risk and sacrifice for the well-being of another. The willingness to take such risks and make such sacrifices requires courage as an activating agent. But at this point, given my four parameters for true kindness established, time, responsibility, courage, and sacrifice, consider how the virtue of Christ's good Samaritan compares to what Aristotle described as a great type of kindness. Now, if you recall, Aristotle's first requirement was that there be someone who is in great need. And then he gave us the definition that, quote, needs are desires, especially those accompanied with pain because of something not present. Longings for things felt in sufferings of the body and in times of danger. He also said that it was great when someone needs something important that is difficult to get. Or also when someone who desperately needs something at a moment of importance or during a crisis. He also emphasized greatness if the person who is addressing the needs of the desperate individual is the first or the only or the chief person to give the help. Given that outline by Aristotle, if I didn't know any better, I would think that Christ's parable of the Good Samaritan was modeled upon Aristotle's outline of great kindness. Come to think of it, if Christ had studied Aristotle, why couldn't the parable be based on the outline of Aristotle's teachings? Remember, he spent some formative years in Egypt. He likely would have learned the Greek language, including its philosophies. All right, I've outlined Aristotle's parameters for kindness, and I've offered some of my own. Instead of talking of levels of kindness, now I would like to speak of types. Now, until now, I've only spoken of what I would refer to as type one kindness. Kindness as is meant to give comfort to or alleviate pain in another in the here and now. If you remember, it was previously pointed out that kindness lies on the love as a virtue spectrum. Love is interesting because it's commonly known to present itself in several different types. For example, romantic love, platonic love, brotherly love, tough love. It is this latter type, tough love, that is the subject of several scriptural love references most of which refer to God's love for us. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6 and 11. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Now, 
no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Helaman, chapter 15, verse 3. The people of Nephi hath he loved, and also hath he chastened them. Yea, in the days of their iniquities hath he chastened them, because he loveth them. Those points in mind, it would lead to reason that kindness, as part of the love spectrum, would be completely in character, manifesting itself in different types. As confirmation, I've come upon several reputable examples where the term kindness is used to describe virtue that is not an effort to provide comfort, nor to alleviate someone's pain, but instead to enable the potential of another individual through uncomfortable or undesirable measures. Tough kindness. A parallel, the tough love. Psalms 141, verse 4 and 5. Incline not my heart to any evil thing, to practice wicked words with men that work iniquity, and let me not eat of their dainties. Let the righteous smite me, it shall be a kindness, and let him reprove me, it shall be an excellent oil shall not break my head, for yet my prayer also shall be in their calamities. In his talk, The Virtue of Kindness, Elder Joseph B. Worthland devotes the majority of his time appraising primary types of kindness as expected. Those types associated with the Sermon on the Mount, a few lines of which he quotes in his discourse. Judge not, and you shall not be judged, as well as do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He continues through the bulk of his talk telling stories of nice kindness, what we in the Bagley family affectionately call type one kindness. Elder Worthlin continues in this manner until he begins to speak about his wife, Sister Worthlin, the person with whom he shares the most complex, most meaningful relationship. He begins by elevating his wife in classic terms of primary affection, describing her as, quote, the model of kindness, gentleness, and compassion, close quote. But it becomes clear very quickly that he understands that their relationship, its stability and growth, as well as his own personal progression, are founded on a kindness of a deep maturity. A kindness that actually appreciates criticism as a token of productive love. Counter what he states previously in his talk when he states, judge not that you be not judged. Elder Worthlin reveals a kindness where judgment was welcomed between his wife and him. He explains, quote, When my wife begins a sentence with the words, I should think you would. I instantly pay attention and begin searching my mind for something I may have done wrong. Oftentimes before my wife has finished her sentence, I have already planned out in my mind a magnificent apology. Close quote. The understanding of this next level kindness, what the Bagley's call type two kindness, is inspiring. Elder Worthland reveals that through time and effort, he and his wife had developed a depth of kindness between one another to the extent that when she used the words, I should think you would. They both understood that she was affectionately preparing him to receive an upper level type two kindness, 
which involves constructive, good-hearted criticism. And because he understood those as the code words for type 2 kindness, whatever words followed, Elder Worthland knew that his wife's words were meant with productive love. He then, over time, adapted the ability to productively prepare, on the spot, responses that would optimize the anticipated constructive interaction that his wife was preparing to offer him. In concluding his remarks about his wife, Elder Worthland concedes, quote, Her insight, counsel, and support have been invaluable to me. Because of her, I too am a wiser and kinder person. Close quote. Take note of his last statement. Elder Worthland essentially acknowledges that because of his wife's critical kindness, his potential was enabled. Such critical kindness alongside his ability to humbly accept her advice made him a wiser and kinder individual. So I should clarify, of course, what I mean when I use the term type 2 kindness. It means that in most cases, I'm talking about productive interaction in meaningful relationships. Relationships that are more effective and efficient than those of mere primary interaction. And they are so because those relationships have developed the strength, the courage, the commitment, and respect to operate under higher levels of critical assessment. And then, in some cases, in addition to those meaningful relationships, I'll also use the term when describing events, regardless of the depth of relationship between those involved, where one person will offer needed but uncomfortable critical assessment of another to prevent further unneeded suffering of the person who needs help. Hey, buddy, I'm sorry to point this out, but your zipper's down. I know that's awkward, but I figured better me than your blind date. Or even worse, discovering it yourself at the end of the night. The consummate example of type 2 kindness being the atonement. God the Father subjecting his favored son to the sins and experiences of all mankind. So that Christ might obtain his full potential. That is type 2 kindness. Another quick example for those who have seen the movie. Consider the end fate of Old Yeller. Except for the fact that Old Yeller is a dog. And I've limited kindness as a, a virtue to human suffering. I'll allow it for animals on a case-by-case basis. Christ's own use of the word kind is a testament of type 2 kindness, which, surprisingly, for all the kindness we attribute to Christ, when it came to teaching, Christ only used the word kind once during his ministry. Luke chapter 6, verse 35. But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Isn't that interesting? When Jesus decided to use the word kind, 
He used it to describe how God interacts with people who are evil and unthankful. This should make you pause and think about God's concept of kindness. Is its focus to provide comfort? Comfort to the unthankful? Comfort to the evil? Or is the focus of kindness more to enable potential in all his children? A genuine search would include accounts of those severely experienced in comfort and in discomfort. Only such individuals could correctly testify of aspects of kindness and love that exist both inside and outside of comfort, thereby verifying the virtue is not defined by creating comfort in another, that the true core of kindness is propagating another's potential. As a doctor of neurology and psychiatry, as well as a survivor of the Nazi prison camp system, Dr. Viktor Frankl offers such a qualified assessment on the universal characteristics of love. Listen closely, and you'll recognize distinguished levels, or types maybe, of increasing love through Dr. Frankel's description. Quote, Love is the only way to grasp another human being in the innermost core of his personality. No one can become fully aware of the very essence of another human being unless he loves him. By his love, he is enabled to see the essential traits and features in the beloved person. And even more, he sees that which is potential in him, which is not yet actualized, but yet ought to be actualized. Furthermore, by his love, the loving person enables the beloved person to actualize these potentialities. By making him aware of what he can be and of what he should become, he makes these potentialities come true. Close quote. This quote comes from Dr. Frankel's worldwide bestseller, Man's Search for Meaning, a book on the emotional and psychological experience of the concentration camps, an eye-opening commentary on the value of life outside of what we are accustomed to, or maybe better said, what we feel entitled to, an emotionally positive life experience. A similar author, out of similar suffering, in fact, his was eight years enslavement in Soviet labor camps, the Nobel Prize-winning author Alexander Solzhenitsyn draws a related truth, a truth he calls simple, but only knowable to those who have suffered, that being that there is a greater spiritual potential in defeat than there is in victory, and that the application applies to peoples in war and to individuals who experience suffering. Quote, There is a simple truth which one can learn only through suffering. In war, not victories are blessed, but defeats. Governments need victories. And the people need defeats. Victory gives rise to the desire for more victories. But, after a defeat, it is freedom that men desire and usually attain. A people needs defeat, just as an individual needs suffering and misfortune. They compel the deepening of the inner life and generate a spiritual upsurge. Close quote. 
Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Gulag Archipelago. Solzhenitsyn's observation of mankind's behavioral and spiritual response to a successful act of an enemy returns us actually to our original parable in the first and second episodes, the wheat and tares. An impactful momentary defeat may cause temporary administrative disruption, but it activates what could not be achieved otherwise. A need. Knowledge. Now, in the case of the parable of the wheat and tares, only by the enemy's success in sowing tares does the householder then have the opportunity to impart unto his servants the necessary knowledge of what distinguishes the fruit of true wheat from its convincing counterfeit, the tare. The implicit point here being that there is a greater potential that exists in tough love and tough kindness that a wise helper, a wise householder, can impart greater kindness to those whose need is correction and implementation of new knowledge. Wisdom that, according to Solzhenitsyn, can only be assimilated through discomfort, through suffering, through a defeat. His is a testimony that kindness and love, at its core, is far greater than providing merely comfort. His testimony, as one profoundly familiar with discomfort, confers validity to this complex, underappreciated idea. Kindness, type two. A kindness that fulfills all requirements. Helping somebody who is in need. A kindness that can stand the test of time. Kindness that accepts responsibility. A kindness it takes courage and sacrifices one's own comfort. Kindness. Enable potential in others. close out these episodes, I want to give a shout out to my brother, Brian, who shared his kindness car crash story with me. Of the 12 siblings, Brian is number two. Remember, I'm number five. Brian was the first person to actually really encourage me to read and love the scriptures. It was probably his example of commitment to the gospel and his integrity that first put me on my own gospel path. Brian loves God. He is also highly intellectual, and he's one of the hardest workers I've ever known. With that combination, Brian has actually written and published a book of his own. The book is titled Building Faith Like the Brother of Jared. It offers thoughts about a Book of Mormon prophet who lived during the time of the Tower of Babel. Brian's unique assessment of this leader and his followers comes from his years of experience as a forensic engineer. Using his professional expertise, as well as his ability to see things from different perspectives, Brian analyzes this God-fearing people shortly after they break off from the larger culture of Babel, the same Babel culture where engineering advancements had emboldened the people to pride, 
and a sinister action until they incurred the wrath of God. Again, the book is called Building Faith Like the Brother of Jared. I will place a link on the webpage for the book. It can also be found at Deseret Book, on Amazon, as well as on Google Books. You should all check it out.